Welcome to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Kim is a psychotherapist and executive director of ICU Talks, a mental health speaking ministry. This is a podcast about how to flip your lid and learning how to reconnect to who you really are. Well, hey, wonderful Flip Your Lid audience. We've got a special guest with you today. Today, I get to interview Meg Carber. She is a registered dietitian. And even cooler than that, we hang out in the same building. Our office is in the same building. (laughs) And because she's so good at what she does, and allegedly I'm good at what I do, we never see each other. (laughs) We never get to say more than good morning to each other. And so today, we actually get to learn from her and she's got a lot to bring to the table so Meg thank you so much for being a part of this today. Thank you I'm really excited. Yes it's gonna be good so let's just do what we do let's just start this off so Meg tell our wonderful audience a little bit about what's happened in your life that flipped your lid and what measures did you have to take to reconnect to who you really are? Yeah I love this question because I've mm. actually never spoken about this yet really in mm. any interviews Um, But to me, I think that my personal and professional journey over this last five years has just been this series of synchronicities that I couldn't ignore. And I think it really, the catalyst was my son is about to be four on Monday, actually, August 1st is his Mm. birthday. Um, And really his delivery was was what really flipped my lid. Mm. It was not an easy labor. It was very stressful and traumatic, but then his early postpartum was as well. And I think like becoming a parent is naturally an opportunity to, to flip some lids for people. Yeah. Um, and really kind of like dig deeper into healing, but it really wasn't until his delivery that I realized ironically as an Mm. eating disorder dietitian who works with people to help them be more embodied and on Mm. the same team as their body. I didn't realize how disconnected I was from my own body until I really had to start to do some of the trauma healing after, Mm. um, after he was born. So, yeah. That's so good. There's so many key words in that, you know, us talking about Mm -hmm. eating disorders and disordered eating and delivery in the embodied brain, right? Just knowing the, the, how much our brain and bodies are, talking to each other. I know you speak polyvagal with y'all. I'm so excited to talk to somebody who is a neuro nerd like I am. And so let's just go with that and talk a little bit about, you know, knowing what it's like to be someone who specializes in eating disorders. And so much of that is about understanding our parts of self, understanding, you know, how the signals are coming inside, how we're connecting. So tell me a little bit about how you started figuring out what your signals were inside of you. Yeah, it truly was like, it was around the same time that I was kind of feeling the frustration my clients were feeling. Most Mm. of the people I work with are like, I know what to do, but I'm not doing it. Or I've been told all the things I'm supposed to do to recover and it's just not working. And of course, the society we live in, they're left feeling like they are the problem. And again, I didn't even really see the parallels in my own journey of, feeling like I was a problem until I started to uncover some of these things. And then I started to realize like, yeah, you are a model CBT therapy student. Like I was the best at showing up and reframing my thoughts, but my mind was my sharpest tool Mm -hmm. and I, it was to keep me out of my body. So when I started to really have to do some of the trauma processing myself and realize how disconnected I was from my body, learn more about the states of my nervous system and how that actually was driving some of my 
maladaptive behaviors or Mm -hmm. the cognitive distortions I had to reframe in the first place, right? I started Mm -hmm. to be like, wow, this is the missing link with my clients as well as, you know, the kind of conventional approach to eating disorder treatment is still very much top down. Mm -hmm. And we avoid talking about the body because the body is often the source of trauma and the thing we're trying to minimize or shrink or avoid. So I'm sitting there giving clients more knowledge, but I'm just also keeping them in their minds and out of their bodies. So, you know, it was kind of, again, these synchronicities of like feeling the frustration with my clients and starting to doubt myself as a clinician of like, I can only take them so far. What are we missing in my own journey realizing? And again, that's why I say like my son's birth, while it was traumatic, I'm able to look back at it now as like a blessing in disguise of Mm. had it not been, I think I would still just be sitting in my CBT counseling office with my therapist reframing all my anxious thoughts and never really getting to the root of like, yeah, Meg, okay. Like there's, there's some trauma here from childhood and there's a reason why you became disembodied and disconnected Mm -hmm. and staying in your mind is only going to get you so far as well. Kind of thing. Yeah. That's so good at understanding like the, the trauma comes in. There's some disconnect from a caretaker, some disconnect from somebody, a connection wound is, is born from that. And at that time, it's about staying disconnected from self so that you can just survive. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the latter, about how people go from ventral vagal into sympathetic and then in the dorsal vagal? Can you kind of frame that, whether you talk about yourself or, or somebody in general, of helping people understand being on the ladder and how to know where we are on that autonomic nervous system ladder? Yeah, I think for myself personally, I started to realize I was also a later in life ADHD diagnosis. And even once I was diagnosed, I still don't think I fully understand, I fully understood just how my brain works differently. And I still really internalized a lot of the things that were difficult for me. I had a hard time doing as moral failures, right? Like I joke that from 2018 to, or 2008 to 2018, my like favorite affirmation was what the heck is wrong with you? Like I was constantly like, Oh, what are you doing? So for me, I started to realize, wow, from a really early age, I was pathologized as anxiety, depression, medications, definitely had some sensory processing disorder that I never really got support for. So I started Mm. to kind of disconnect from my body because it was an uncomfortable place to be and it didn't Mm. make sense to me and no one in my life was really helping me make sense of it. So then I started to learn more about, okay, yeah, when I feel what I'm labeling as anxiety in my body, that's actually looking more like a state of hypervigilance. Mm -hmm. And when I try these certain things, oh, wow, look at that. That's actually helped me kind of regulate and that's helped the anxiety dissipate. Mm -hmm. When I look a little bit more like this, like trouble getting out of bed or maybe a slower state, oh, that's actually more of like a dorsal state or like a freeze fawn, right? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of times my clients, the parallel in our stories is we do end up kind of pathologizing these behaviors In an eating disorder. It may look like, you know, maybe compulsive exercise. I can't stop moving. It's not safe to stop moving. Mm -hmm. And that's the state of hypervigilance, right? Mm -hmm. To ask these clients to exercise less is deeply uncomfortable because they're not in their window of tolerance. So it feels like a threat. So because my mind has been my sharpest tool for so long, I love the neuroscience behind, oh, no wonder Mm -hmm. those kind of conventional approaches only got me so far or never truly made me feel whole again. Like I understand that my body and my nervous system is only ever trying to keep me safe. And it was Mm -hmm. registering some of these things as threats. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense now kind of Mm -hmm. thing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, safety is is so crucial. And when we're in an addiction, which which is goes an eating disorder, any type of disordered behavior mm-hmm. or maladaptive behavior, as you called it, that's just such a great way of knowing to give ourselves grace that some threat has come in and I don't know how to be safely connected to self. I don't know how to be in a place of connection. And so th- we just do all we know to do. Yeah. And, and that's it. And that's usually behavioral, mm-hmm. right? Opposed to knowing how it is to regulate our emotions, regulate our life experiences. And so your your specialty is helping, is co-regulating with your clientele. Yeah. Right? So what do you think, especially for women, and, and men are not exempt from this, but especially for women that are fractured, fragmented relationships with our parents, for women it really gets shown and displayed through food in our relationship with food so rapidly, so excessively. So why do you think that is? I think you touched on earlier. I think attachment does have a lot to do with it. I think part mm-hmm. of why, you know, and even if someone doesn't identify as someone, you know, in recovery from an eating disorder, I think most humans in our society have some sort of disordered eating just because it's the waters we all swim in. Right. Right. But sometimes it feels so hard to break away from that because there's actually kind of an attachment to it, you know, Mm -hmm. like in the same way that our disordered or maladaptive behaviors are our body trying to regulate and find safety. If I'm asking you to just give up the tool that is keeping you safe, that's terrifying. And that's Mm -hmm. often when we see kind of a game of whack-a-mole, like maybe a client doesn't restrict anymore, but now they're exercising more, or maybe Mm -hmm. they stop the compulsive exercise, but they're binging or, you know, we kind of shape shift behaviors Mm -hmm. if we never get to the root of safety Mm -hmm. and also kind of like rebuilding secure attachment with ourselves and with food, you know, like Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times those clients I'm always talking to clients about like, let's build out kind of a a toolkit, if you will. And emotional eating, I think gets a bad rap, but eating can be one of the tools. What are the other tools like? And when there's not more in the toolkit, we're going to abuse and misuse Mm -hmm. eating or exercise or, you know, body checking or some of those kind of things. Right. Uh, Have you, have you found a correlation with, the types of abuse that then become certain types of eating disorder behavior? Hmm. Good question. I think everybody's journey is so unique. I mean, there's certainly some, and this is where it gets kind of really therapeutic uh, and kind of complex is that people don't even realize how easily the behaviors can transfer. Like I have a few Mm -hmm. clients on my caseload right now that, they're kind of like, you know, I never really struggled with food or my weight when I was younger. And now they're sitting in adulthood and everything feels like it's too much. Their body feels like it's too much. Their needs feel like it's too much. Um, But if you trace it back in childhood, they were that child that was too much, right? Mm -hmm. Like they were too loud, too energetic. Mm -hmm. So there can be some kind of like parallels there, there in terms of like, what was the impact that had on you? And then how does that show up in your life later? But in general, I think we just never can predict how someone is going to cope under that dysregulation or that misattunement. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, it can also really shapeshift. So it's common mm-hmm. that especially my clients who've been battling it for decades, they feel like they've kind of mixed, you know, like they've yeah. kind of run the gamut in terms of diagnoses. Yeah. And because I know you're good at what you do, I know you let your clientele and anyone listening to this, you can come up with your own definition of safety. 
Yeah. And I have my words for it. But for you in, in your personal life, how how is safety now defined? I love that question. And I think for me, this is the first time in my life of trying to find that answer from a place of my body, right? Yeah. Like, had you asked me five years ago, my answer would have been all cognitive. Whereas yeah. now to me, safety is a felt sense. I know mm. from a nervous system, neuroception perspective, from just a place of regulation and mm-hmm. safe co-regulation. Mm-hmm. And now that means that can be in a variety of different places or with a variety of different people. Mm-hmm. But I do think it has to start with like a, an embodied sense of safety within yourself first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So my definition for people is I tell them safety means voice and choice mm-hmm. because as a child, so many of us had no choice and we weren't allowed to have a voice. And yeah. Yeah, and just this idea of, for a lot of us have relational trauma as a child, the threat for us is any connection to self. So the idea of telling someone, hey, can you just sit for a second with that? And you can still eat the M&M, but will you sit with yourself for a second before you eat it? People can last a second, two seconds, right? It's just incredibly uncomfortable, but that discomfort is the path to recovery. And knowing yeah. how, how it's okay if it's only a second. If that's your starting place, and that is victory. Mm-hmm. Right. So how do you how do you see that with yourself, and then with all your, also your clientele of finding safety in discomfort when we were kids and we were uncomfortable meant there was incredible threat around us. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the exact reason why. I was feeling the frustration of my clients who were like, I know what to do and I'm not doing it. Or I know the things that I'm told are best practice, but they're not helping me is Mm -hmm. those, those are just removing the behaviors that keep them feeling safe and not Mm -hmm. helping them reconnect with and reestablish safety from within. It's one of those, like, you know, the behaviors that kept me safe up until this point in my life start Mm -hmm. to become behaviors that moved me farther away from safety, mm-hmm. but it's never as simple as, Oh, you restrict. Okay. Then you're going to go ahead and eat six yeah. times tomorrow. Right. Are you overexercise? Then you're not going to the gym this week. That is right. That's right. deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. But in, and this is why I'm very impressed by you is that most therapists, psychotherapists like myself, don't speak the language that you speak. And yeah. you as a dietitian don't have to speak this language mm-hmm. at all. You have gone the extra marathon, not to make it, obsessive about exercise. I probably shouldn't use that example. Yeah. yeah. I'm, a, I'm a runner. So that's where I went. All right. But just that idea of that you have taken the time to explore this, because this for all of you know, like there's nothing in the educational package that talks about polyvagal and co-regulation and neuroception and all these things you're hearing her say. And there is an incredible vocabulary that allows us to have an understanding of what's happening in the autonomic nervous system. And autonomic means it happens automatically. Mm-hmm. Right. They say, I don't know how they come up with the statistic, Meg, but they say four times a second we check for safety. Wow. Right. Because neuroception means that people are looking for safety, threat, or danger, looking for cues mm-hmm. of that. Four times a second, people look around to see if they're safe or not. Yeah. So, why we eat, why all of a sudden I'm, I'm binging, or all of a sudden I'm purging, like so much happens in one second that we don't always know the cause. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I think when we look at the states of our nervous system as well, in terms of like, <clears throat> you know, 
sympathetic nervous system, fight, flight, fawn, mm-hmm. freeze, the parasympathetic nervous system, which I feel like we don't talk as much about, yeah. uh, is rest and digest, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. a lot of my clients are coming in with all of these kind of mystery digestive issues or, mm-hmm. you know, very real physical roadblocks to eating more when they're mm-hmm. so dysregulated. That's why this like top-down approach of I'm putting this perfect meal plan in front of you. Why is this not helping? Yeah. We're not actually getting into the body, establishing safety, getting back into rest and digest to allow mm-hmm. our digestive system to do what it mm-hmm. does. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and to fully function. And I appreciate you mentioning that. And I, I hope that we'll only see more dietitians continuing to kind of speak this language. I've trained under the Embodied Recovery Institute um, Mm -hmm. and it's all about like a somatic approach and looking at it through the lens of eating disorders as a defensive strategy, Mm -hmm. but also why do we even have to defend ourselves in the first place? And that's where they talk about our sensory experience being either regulating or dysregulating our attachment dynamics playing into it and Mm -hmm. our nervous system sense of safety or threat. So yeah. All of the credit goes to them, honestly. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was well, like, whoa, this is the yeah. missing piece. This right. makes so much sense. But also, what? What is all this? Because yeah. it is nowhere in my curriculum for right. the last Absolutely. 10 years or so. Yeah. 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 So, and, and my guess is that the, because you know, I teach people this, that attachment styles in America, that there were four or five. You go to somewhere mm-hmm. else, so they've got like 25 attachment styles, right? Mm-hmm. But for us, we keep it simple as possible. And I think, and tell me this because you're more expert than I am that the preoccupied attachment, right? And so it's just like it sounds, I mean, if you're preoccupied with someone else's experiencing, you're neglecting what you're experiencing as a child. So you're more into what your mom or dad is experiencing. You're holding their emotions and their experience and no one's regulating your experience. That's preoccupied. I would think that would be the most common, along with disorganized, right? Because that's that's common. That will be correlated to every addiction, right? When you have a disorganized attachment. But I would think preoccupied would be very high rate for eating disorders. Is that, is that true? Absolutely. I don't, I've never seen statistics of like, you know, but just my experience in terms of my clients is, and even in that example, you're saying of you're so preoccupied with kind of reading the room and walking Mm -hmm. on eggshells and and looking for everyone else's that you forget that you are a human Mm -hmm. with wants and needs. I think I do have a lot of clients later in life who they don't even know what they need or want, let alone the fact that it's safe to acknowledge they have needs to meet those needs for themselves. So it kind of ends up in this very you know, disorganized way that we take care of ourselves because yeah. a lot of it is getting back to that that sense of self. I have a lot of clients yeah. that are like, whoa, yeah. I don't even know what I like. Yep, right. I don't even know what I want. I don't know what I need. I need you to tell me, right? So mm-hmm. we end up very externally focused. Just give mm-hmm. me the plan. Just tell me what to eat. I think that's part of why diet culture really thrives as well is it's just simple for people. It's not asking mm-hmm. them to turn it inward and kind of audit their internal landscape. It's as simple as you're being told what to do and you just, Mm -hmm. you just run with that. Right. But then you really lose your sense of self. Yeah. I love that audit your internal landscape, like know your love map, know who you are. And, And I do think this is why it's more common in females. It's not completely uncommon in males. It definitely happens. We've seen a higher rate with that, but with women, because Women are taught that they're not allowed to connect to self. We get that message in church. We get that message at home. We get the message at school. And that it's just true that men have more of an understanding and they're more likely to have an avoided attachment, which means that it's more about a task, not a, and not a, they're, they put it this way. 
They think I'm okay. I really don't care if you're okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and that, that's encouraged. And when men do the work, they quickly will walk away from that. But overall, you've got a, a man that's tall. I'm not, I'm okay. I don't care if you're okay. A woman that's tall. I'm not okay. It doesn't matter as long as you're okay. And those two people get married, by the way. <laughs> so, but in all of that, any relationship with food doesn't become about a connection to food. It becomes about using it as a way to cover up pain or emotions or, or unresolved experiences. Yeah. Yeah. What are yeah. you, are you seeing a higher rate clientele with males or is it still? Yeah, I am. And I, I don't know that it's because it's more prevalent. I think we're just getting to a place finally where it mm. feels a little bit safer to talk about it, yeah. you know, like, yeah. um, but definitely we have the most amount of males in our practice right now that we've ever had. Um, yeah. That's very think, encouraging. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I am too. And I've even had some that have reached out and been like, you know, I've been looking, but I haven't really seen myself in the websites or in the social media pages mm-hmm. or that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. it's not that I exclusively talk to, and I try to be very inclusive, but I don't know that they would, he would necessarily see himself in my website either, but it's kind of like mm-hmm. a, oh, well, you work with athletes. So it might be a good fit kind of thing, but right. we're definitely seeing more. And I don't think that that's because they haven't been struggling. I think it's just that they're finally to a place of like, let's work on this, you know? Yeah. That's an excellent, excellent point and observation. So in mm-hmm. with that, let's just slide into a very touchy, very sensitive topic of the correlation of sexual abuse mm-hmm. and eating disorders and disordered eating. Can you speak into that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's layered as all traumas and assaults are. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this, polyvagal embodiment approach is asking us to resource the body instead of run for it from it. And I think with a lot of trauma, we can disconnect from self, but especially with something like that, um, how, how wise is it? How great is it Mm -hmm. that we have the ability to disconnect from our bodies? Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. in those instances, that treatment plan is very slow in terms of, it doesn't even feel safe to do the basic level interoception of, oh, I'm hungry, right? Mm. Like, I think that that's more likely to be just dissociated from the body. Right. So how do we help again, get back into the body in a way Mm -hmm. that's safe? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Mm -hmm. that goes into what you said earlier that was really well said about, you know, that eating disorder is not even the right terminology anymore, that it is Mm -hmm. a coping mechanism. And if there's another way to regulate what they were experiencing, then we don't have to go into behavior, right? And so yeah. as, as a recovered alcoholic, like I thought for so many years, it was disease of, of addiction. And I can tell you all about American Medical Association. I can tell you the criteria. And the more and more there's research and things out there that it is not necessarily genetic. It really is a coping mechanism. And it's not because mm-hmm. we it's now we know it's, it's generational trauma, not genetic. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that we'll only continue to see the DSM and the criteria around eating disorder diagnoses change to be that as well. I think we're Mm -hmm. finally starting to see some change in just understanding that eating disorders don't have a look and they can come in a variety of shapes and sizes. But for Mm -hmm. a very long time, it was like, oh, if anorexia is what thin white teenagers struggle with, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like there's just these stereotypes 
around what it looks like and where it originates from. Mm-hmm. Oh, they, it's body image related, right? They want right. to be smaller and that kind of stuff. Whereas when we really look at it through this lens of, I almost see like when, cause I do a lot of really trying to throw it back as far as clients can remember, which is sometimes difficult, but like how far back are your earliest memories or what are some of your earliest memories about food mm-hmm. and body? And we start to kind mm-hmm. of build out this like timeline of their experiences. And mm-hmm. clients sometimes have very vivid memory of, you know, being in sixth grade and being bullied about their bodies or, you know, being in fourth grade and their grandmother making comments about their food. Or we really start to kind of see this like, wow, it's never been safe to just be in your body and allow it to grow as it was intended to. It's never been safe to just intuitively eat and mm-hmm. reach for what you wanted because you were mm-hmm. criticized or, right. you know, so when we really start to kind of unpack that, we're like, yeah, we can see these moments where these quote unquote disordered behaviors popped up as little red flags on the timeline of our life that yeah. something deeper was going on, you know, yeah. and there was so kind good. of a misattunement. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. And, and cause attunement is such a part of secure connection, right? Yeah. And such yeah. a part of what helps us start getting better that we're attuned to ourselves and permission to do that. And I love that you brought back up about how strangers, grandparents, parents make mm-hmm. comments about your relationship with food, how food is used as if you do your homework, you can get ice cream, like all the things we're doing that we don't know adds to eating disorders. And I just, I have great passion around because I've had so many things said to me in my life that it's just amazing that people think they have a right to project their fear about food and weight onto other people and the level of damage we're doing to people and how much value we put on how someone looks Mm -hmm. instead of how they're doing. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And I think it is really, you know, that's, it's always a slippery slope too. I um, had a TikTok recently that was my first ever to get 2 million views, but it was, there's a trend right now going on social media of like five things you won't do based on your profession. And Mm -hmm. mine was five things I won't do with my children as an eating disorder dietitian. And Mm -hmm. most of the comments where people were super confused, you can tell it's because they don't trust themselves with that, or that's something Mm -hmm. they struggle with. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I said, I won't use sweets as rewards or just Mm -hmm. like limited to special occasions. Mm -hmm. So people in the comments are like, but if, if they have them, they're just going to, they're never going to stop eating them and they're going to feel, and it's like, that's probably something you don't trust yourself with. Or maybe your access to it was limited as a child. So you don't Mm -hmm. know how to regulate yourself around it where Mm -hmm. kids are usually really intuitive eaters and they don't know any of this you know, morality around shape and size until we start to plant those seeds. They start to hear that their body is too big or puberty is such a delicate time because everybody in that classroom grows grows and develops at a different rate. Um, And the amount of clients I've heard on either end of that spectrum where they were the first to develop in their class and then that was, you know, harmful or they were the last and that was harmful. It's like, you know, kids are really made to feel like they're kind of it's going to cost, I don't know if I can, but you oh, know, on yeah. either end of the spectrum, it's like, okay, we're damned if we do, damned if we don't, yeah, right? Yeah, like, it absolutely. doesn't matter. Yeah, which is just so sad. And the amount of times that adults are projecting that on. Another one of the things I said was that I won't comment on my children's bodies. Yeah. And people were very like, but but can I even say? And to them, what they're saying is a positive or a compliment, but mm-hmm. it starts to plant those seeds that... Mm-hmm that our bodies matter so much more than they do. And what happens then when our bodies grow and develop and change because hello, they're supposed to, right. we almost lose that part of our identity, right? Like I've had mm-hmm. clients who were the smallest one, but then they hit puberty, they become larger, which is developmentally appropriate and super healthy for them. But they lose that, oh, you've always been the tiny one. You can eat yeah. whatever you want. You don't have to worry yeah. about it. Yeah. And they panic, right? And yeah. they start restricting to make their body smaller. So, mm-hmm. you know, anytime 
all of that stuff is coming. It's usually a projection, you're right, of like their own insecurities around food mm-hmm. and body mm-hmm. and just planting seeds that aren't organically there for our kids. Yeah. Could you, like, I have two toddlers. I could never imagine if my four-year-old was like, oh, I can't eat that. There's too much fat in that. Or yes. that's so, you know, that's so bad for me kind of thing. Or right. I need to work out harder on the playground tomorrow because I just ate candy tonight. Like what? No, we just don't hear yeah. that. Yeah, if that's right. If we did, right. I'd be like, holy crap, you know? But, yeah, yeah, that's so yeah. good. And, and amazing how we, we are taught that. And that's the thing, yes. like shame is always a gift. Shame is always yeah. given to you by someone else. And mm. it's so prevalent and, and there's a normalcy to it and doesn't make it okay. It's just normalcy that we don't realize that it's shame induced and that was never meant to be part of our, our DNA. It never meant to be part of our, our, our internal landscape, our understanding yeah. of self, right? Mm-hmm. The, and that we can do something about this. The harm we're doing to people that the only thing we comment on, on with each other is how we, how someone looks. Yes. Right? That's the highest value. We can do something about that. You know, there is the, intentionality we can have around around food and not commenting on what someone's eating you Mm -hmm. know and not allowing so much value be placed on restriction yeah and working out obsessively and so what advice would you give if you have a friend or you see somebody and it's obvious that they are doing something like they're they're working out more they've changed their diet Mm -hmm. what what, put words on that for us of how to talk to each other without causing more harm. Yeah, I think a very heavy undercurrent of compassion and curiosity. I loved what you said a little bit ago about we put so much emphasis on how people look and not how they are. That mm-hmm. is something that I hear almost unanimously from my clients working through recovery is that they hear the comments of how you look so great. But they're losing weight because they are eating under a thousand calories a day, right? right? Or they stop receiving the compliments when Mm -hmm. they start to regain some of the weight. So Mm -hmm. these things, again, people don't mean anything negative by it. If they, I think a lot of people, if they realize the harm it was doing, they would not make these comments. So I think rather than comments or assumptions, it's always just curiosity. How are Mm -hmm. you doing? You know, like Mm -hmm. especially with what I do, I'm never like complimenting weight loss or people's bodies or because you never know like we've all I think heard those stories now of like yeah I lost weight when actually there was a TikTok I saw recently that I loved I I speak in TikTok obviously Um, listen I've got to get I got to get on this TikTok thing I'm I'm behind the times get over there it's fantastic (laughs) and I only ever talk in TikToks now I'm like this is my this is my references. I can probably find a scholarly article, but this is my reference. Um, but there was one recently where they asked their followers, when you lost weight, what was happening? And it was a beautiful video of like, when I lost weight and received compliments, I was going through a divorce. I just lost my mother. I just received a diagnosis. Mm. My child was being bullied. Like there's some really heavy stuff that people yeah. are going through. Yeah, so and that, that creates another misattunement, right? Like mm. that's such an opportunity to connect mm-hmm. and to truly ask, how are you? Are you okay? What's going on? Yeah. Um, So good. And I, I think that's too, we're like helping people better understand their nervous systems and how their body responds to stress is really powerful. It is harder to eat when we are under stress and dysregulated. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. sometimes restriction and weight loss isn't necessarily like intentional, you know, we're Mm -hmm. really stressed. There's some heavy stuff going on. It's harder to eat. We miss meals. Maybe we're less attuned to the, to our body's needs. And then we start receiving compliments about our weight loss. And we're like, Oh, Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is a good thing. I guess, I guess Mm -hmm. we should keep this up. So Mm -hmm. it's a very long way to say that's such a beautiful opportunity to connect 
And I think always leading with just curiosity and questions versus like assumptions or what you perceive as compliments, because you never know how that's going to land for the other person. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's so well said. And, and, you know, I, so let's talk about perfectionism for a second, right? Because we know that's part of a trauma response. And so I'll, I'll reveal this. So when I had about 10 years sobriety, uh, which I think is a very crucial time when you're sober, get 10 years, all of a sudden it's about emotional sobriety and a lot of people start messing up and I did and I ended up in a treatment mm-hmm. center for eating disorder. And I will tell you, I'm the only one in the group that could do the artwork or do any assignment they gave us quickly. Everyone yeah. else could not finish in the time frame. <clears throat> I had no issue with perfectionism. I just wanted, I just would do it very, very quickly and make my point and I was out, right? Everyone mm-hmm. else was like the level of perfectionism. Right. So that's yeah. the one area I did not struggle. Still this day, don't struggle with perfectionism. But that yeah. is prevalent for people. Any idea about that and how that comes in as as yeah. one of the coping mechanisms? Yeah, I think, you know, it goes back to, and this is again where, you know, my practice, we really do practice from a top down and a bottom up. So top down being like the cognitive skills um, the education too, of just, here's how your body works. Like, I know that's what that diet told you, but that the body doesn't actually work that way. Right. But then the bottom up also being like regulation. And I think that perfectionism really keeps us in this just very rigid black or white place. And Mm -hmm. the human body and the human experience is so much more colorful and complex than that. So sometimes too, that's even more anxiety provoking for clients when we start to break down that that feels very certain, like Mm. I can be perfect at this. And when we start to actually break down those walls and they start to learn more about like, yeah, I know counting calories, like you feel like Mm. you have to do it and you're doing it perfectly, but there's a lot of variation in even calorie labels. And like, so we can start to kind of break that down and realize like, there's really no way to perfect any of this, you know, which to some people, again, like I said, can be further anxiety provoking, but for others, it helps them realize like, this is a false sense of safety and this is a Mm -hmm. false sense of control. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do I try to find the safety without the maladaptive behavior? But yeah, Yeah. perfectionism is definitely very, very common. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's, it's about seeing someone like you who understands the trauma that's happening in there in that, you know, I say this a lot. I don't believe in self-destruction because if there was mm. self, there'd be no destruction, mm. right? That we are very mm-hmm. constructive when we're connected to self, but that yeah. you can have other areas of your life that your wise self, your essence is showing up. And when it comes to food, that your trauma is still being played out and displayed. And, and here's part of the trick. Like we need to be seen. That's a huge emotional need. And, if as a child, you being seen meant you weren't safe, yeah. you now have this amazing conflict inside of you that you still need to be seen, but you don't feel safe being seen. And that yeah. is where I think eating disorders can come in really well. It allows us to be seen. And at the same time, we don't know how to make it okay. Mm-hmm. That just on our own, people, you have a right to say, hey, I need some attention. I need to be seen today. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any techniques or anything mm-hmm. particular you're using to help people know that they have a right to have a voice around that and leading up, getting to a point you're allowed to have a voice about being seen? Yeah, I think I always like to, I just think, I just think humans are so wise, even when they don't yeah. think they are, right? right? Like, I think that there's a lot of ways that my clients are already intuitively and very innately resourcing their body and mm. trying to cope 
in healthier ways. So Mm -hmm. I love to kind of kick the door open by showing them ways that they already are listening to and trusting their bodies, which can become a gateway to, I can listen to my body when it has needs. I, I can trust my body to Mm -hmm. eat and to eat these certain foods, Mm -hmm. but you know, especially the more knowledge I gain around somatics, like in my office down here, um, we'll have to come down here and, and I'll teach you TikTok. But like, I've got a little, uh, I've got some hammock chairs in here. I have some yoga mm-hmm. balls. I have these like weighted lap and shoulder pads. So mm-hmm. I have a variety of different like sensory and regulation tools that I always mm-hmm. have available. And sometimes if I can tell something about a client, I might encourage them to try it and see what changes. But people are pretty wise in that like, they'll walk into the office, they'll sit down, they'll immediately like put a pillow over themselves, for example. Mm-hmm. So a gateway to me being like, you can listen to your body. Your body has needs that it's always telling you and it's okay to listen to them is like, how did you even know that you wanted to sit down and hold the pillow? Right. How did you know that you chose those clothes today? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, how did you know that you had to pee? Like people are listening to their body's needs in certain areas of life, mm-hmm. but it That's feels true. really terrifying to listen to it when it comes to eating, yeah. eating enough, either yeah. getting moving or slowing down exercise. Right. So mm-hmm. sometimes to help people understand, like you already are doing this. We yeah. just need to transfer those skills to, yeah. it's okay to have needs and wants with food. Yeah. And yeah, with that body, is, you know? yeah, that is so good. You know, if you come in my mm-hmm. office and I have a weighted pillow too, but they can't really always grab that and see that. But if you come in my office yeah. and you put a pillow in your lap, I automatically think abuse. I think you're hiding you? something. Yeah. 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 It's just, like a, just adding, a, adding like a barrier between. Yeah. Them or or they, they, they are concerned about their weight. So they're going to hide their mm-hmm. stomach or that they, or they are self-soothing. They know they grab the pillow right on some level. Um, but it's, yeah. it's interesting because a lot of people will use the pillow in a sense of kind of hiding yep. behind it. And it's just, it's just an observation because it's interesting that you take it as, Oh, wow. Like, look, there's some, there's some intellect in there around needs. And, yeah. and to me, I'm, I'm checking to see, is that a, is that a red flag? Is that, a, is that their subconscious way of showing me yeah. that, that, yeah. That, and I that, think it could be a red flag, but it's also like, they don't even, they might even realize the red flag, but they just, that's right. they just that's intuitively right. knew that's right. to sit here feels too vulnerable to cover my lap with a pillow. Yeah. All of a sudden I feel like I can talk to Kim a little bit better, yeah. right? Like yeah. there's a lot of, of ways like that, that yeah. again, that I think, you know, and sometimes again, we start small with clients where mm-hmm. I had a client kind of recently that we were on a call and she was feeling some low blood sugar and she really struggles to even admit that she has any wants or needs. And she, what she needed was some juice to boost her blood sugar up. But, uh-huh. but she was kind of like, Oh, I'm fine. We can, I can do it after the call. And I was like, let's do this together. I'm going to walk to my fridge and get juice mm-hmm. and you're going to walk to yours and get juice and we'll come back together. So sometimes even for us to, again, safely co-regulate, do that mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. She knew she had a need, but she didn't feel safe enough to just meet her own need. But because right. we did it together, we both came back, we were telehealth and we came back to our desk with our juice and she was in tears, you know, yeah. like, yeah. so sometimes you need that just safe person to say, Hey, I, yeah. I know that you notice your need and guess what? It's okay yeah. for you to meet your need. It's kind yeah. of a different story if they don't even register the need but I do find a lot of clients notice the need but that's so good shut themselves off from it you know yeah that's so good I I just think that's something that I don't think we can talk enough about this that so Mm -hmm. many of us male and female but I'm going to focus on female for a second I'm not intentionally even non-binary I just don't have statistics around that right yeah Um, but I love non-binary people the level of courage they have is just ridiculous so but as as a woman, I can speak about that. Of in the women I've worked with, this 
the the fact that we are not allowed to have a need. Mm-hmm. The fact that I don't have men come to my office and talk about they feel selfish. Yep. Like it's very rare, very rare. Maybe two percent men will say that to me. That that we aren't allowed to take up space. That you know, men come to my office and this is absolute truth. They take everything out of their pockets, put it all across the coffee table. They always move the cleanness box. They sit in the middle of the couch and they spread out. They are taught it's okay to take up <laughs> space. And I'm glad they are. That's yeah. beautiful. But we sure. aren't. We aren't. And Everybody that's part can. Of, Yeah. And that's yeah. part of why we restrict yeah. food. And that is part of why so much happens that we aren't allowed to have a need. We're allowed to take care of someone else's need. But we get the message in, in so many different arenas. Mm-hmm. That, that, that neglect of self is somehow beautiful and it's nothing but abuse. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's honestly part of back to the original question of like what flipped my lid. I think Mm -hmm. becoming a parent really Mm -hmm. exacerbates that as well. Like it's, it's such an opportunity to be fully selfless. If you're not already in roles in your community or your work or in your family structure that you are needless and wantless, like you're Mm -hmm. putting these little humans ahead of you. Whereas it does feel selfish Mm -hmm. to take time for yourself first, but yeah, it is fascinating to see just how deeply ingrained in it is us and, and how generational it is as well, right? Yes. Like a lot of times we're rubbing up against things that are just so normalized in our culture that we mm-hmm. really are swimming upstream and that makes the work feel even harder. Like mm-hmm. if these kind of deeply ingrained beliefs and, and gender norms and these systems of oppression weren't a thing, I don't think my specialty would be. And as much as I love my job, I would love a world where everybody knows they can take up space and they can mm-hmm. have needs and wants. And that's okay. That's not pathological or these yeah. labels we apply to it, right? Like right. my daughter uh, is only 16 months old and one of her teachers was like, oh, she is so bossy. And I was like, Hell she yeah. knows what she wants and needs. And that's what I left it at. Like, we yeah. are not freaking That's labeling right. yeah, yeah. my toddler right. as a bossy because right. I know what that turns into, right? That's right. That turns yeah. into all these stories later in life versus yeah. I'm like, no, we're going to hold on to the fact that like mm-hmm. girl knows what she wants and she goes there after you go. it, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I love that parenting because we know if he, if it was your little boy, he would have been told, oh, what a leader he is. Mm-hmm. And we know this. This is not crying victim. This is based on experience. This is based on the research that's out there. It's it's part of occupational segregation. There's so much that happens from from the get from the beginning, yeah. right? The, of how yeah. we label a little girl and how we label a little boy, and this is all part of, of of the disorder. This is all part of why we go into behavior because we're not getting permission to explore who we actually are. I agree. Yeah, even if you go like I go shopping for my kids, and you just spend spend time mm-hmm. next time you go to a store whether you're a parent or not just mm-hmm. walk by the kids section and you're going to yeah. see like adventure explore yeah. you know right. all this kind of stuff on boys and you're going to see mm-hmm. like cute sweet sassy yeah. on like the right. girls clothes you know or you pull up like to you know a size 18 months in girl shorts or size mm-hmm. 18 months in boys and that boys mm-hmm. has so much more fabric that girls is already smaller mm-hmm. in the waist and right. shorter so even at that age where children really we don't see a difference mm-hmm. in how they grow and develop they're already like girls are supposed to be smaller. Boys are supposed to yeah. be bigger. So yeah. this stuff goes very, very deep. And at, yeah. the, at the crux of it, I really hope all of my clients and people listening know yeah. you and your body are not the problem, right? Yeah, like these yeah. are the systems we operate in that make us yeah. feel like we're the problem and we have to fight like hell mm-hmm. to fix it and shrink it and change it. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Like we're just yeah. not even supported in being who yeah. we want to be mentally, physically, spiritually, all that stuff. 
Yeah, that's so well said and so good. Just that that passion of really just knowing that this is why I love therapy and finding the right dietitian, the right yeah. the right church, the right synagogue, whatever it is, mm-hmm. where you're encouraged to actually question and to look at your parts of self. Are they there because of trauma, <coughs> and or are or, or is it self? Is it, is that who you really are? Do you really do you really want to say yes when you're saying yes? Yeah. Right, just starting there. And I, I tell people to to really keep keep a log of how many things that day they said yes to that they really wanted to say no. And then look at their behavior on that day. Did they overeat, <coughs> undereat? Did yeah. they drink alcohol in though they had no plan of drinking alcohol? Like you not again, it goes back to safety is voice and choice. You not exercising your choice throughout your day. And the voices, by the way, they're telling you and they sound really logical about why you need to say yes. That is all shame-based. Yep. That is all conditional. And so we don't even know who we're listening to. Exactly. Yeah. I love that you do that with your clients. It kind of reminds me of when I point out to them ways they are listening to their body Mm because we do see that a lot, right? If they're saying no when they want to say yes and they feel Mm -hmm. deprived, that could be the person that's like, why can't I stop eating? Why am I binging? That's not even what I want. It's like, that's one way you're trying to fulfill mm-hmm. needs that are otherwise going unmet because mm-hmm. in all these other areas of life, you're either saying yes or no when it's actually right. incongruent with yourself. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, so how do we get back to more congruence mm-hmm. when it's possible, right? Like it's incredibly mm-hmm. privileged to hundred percent of the time be congruent and attuned to yourself, but mm-hmm. a hell of a lot more than is currently happening is what people need, you know? Yeah, that's the thing, right? When we're in recovery, if it's 2% more that day, then that is that is victory, right? And that's yeah. just what we have to do. And when we get triggered and we go into an adaptive role, you go into another part, just know that's trauma-based. Like, you know, mm-hmm. some a member of a 12-step program to be told, oh, they relapse because they want to add to their story. That's bullshit. It means you don't understand neuroscience, right? Did they we, say that? They actually say oh, that? That's oh, my perfect. gosh. Oh, yes, they say that all the time. Yeah, it's why I don't I don't go to meetings anymore. Because it it saved my life. Please hear me. Like, I'm sober. I would have died. It's a beautiful thing. And it also doesn't understand trauma and shame and emotional needs. So certain aspects are missing for that. And I still love it and all that. But to tell someone who relapsed, whether it's eating disorder, sexual addiction, anything, that you just wanted to add to your story, I need you to know that 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 is, you've just been, it's disinformation. You've been misinformed. Yeah. It's it's trauma-based. Yeah, that's devastating. That That's mm-hmm. part of why I hope that we're going to continue to see more and more providers mm-hmm. speaking the same language, because mm-hmm. in my world of eating disorders, that is the client that sits in front of me struggling with this for decades mm-hmm. and being labeled as non-compliant. Yeah. We're non-compliant. being told, well, mm-hmm. you know, this is just going to be your life. You know, some mm-hmm. people end up on hospice with this. Like, you know, they're told all yeah. these stories, again, yeah. about being non-compliant or mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. But it again, goes back to like, we're never really getting to the safety or helping, mm-hmm. like fi- helping them find a recovery too that mm-hmm. truly works for them. Like higher levels of care, similar to what you're saying about 12 step, like they serve a purpose to keep people alive, mm-hmm. but there's just protocols and procedures that don't yeah. always make sense to you, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Again, yeah. that's so well said. Are, are there groups or 12 step programs? Because, you know, we, we do know when it comes to addiction, there, there is a we, Right. There's there's a, a group effort that helps with any type of, of pain disorder addiction. And so are there any groups you know of or anything that you feel like are safe enough that still doesn't allow someone to be here's my issue with some of the programs, all right? I'll just say mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Since I'm not the dietitian, maybe it's some better coming 
so it doesn't blemish your reputation or anything. Yeah. So a lot of the programs, honestly, and they work for a lot of people and that's beautiful. You're still obsessed with food. Yeah. You're still having to call your sponsor for your allowed to eat. You're still having to weigh your food. And so the thing is about freedom. So knowing that we need groups, any suggestions, I know it's a big question, any suggestion about that of finding healthy people who are not encouraging the eating disorder yeah. or trying to control you because control is not love. No, it's not. And and you're right. And I think that's because this whole conversation, what we're highlighting is it's not as much about the food as we think it is, right? That's right. So Yes, again, this is where we need the top down and the bottom up. From the top down mm-hmm. perspective, as a dietitian, you have a certain amount of calorie or energy needs. And we know that if you're under eating, we see these health implications. So we want to make mm-hmm. sure you're well nourished and you're healthy, right? So, mm-hmm. yes, it's an art and a science. We need a little bit of the nutrition stuff. But again, like I think that's what keeps people stuck in that obsessed with, or sometimes, unfortunately, I have clients who leave and almost have different behaviors, right? Like, oh, Mm -hmm. I didn't even think about how I could do that until I saw her doing it. So tack that on to some ways I'm coping, you know? Um, Unfortunately, I wish I had a better answer, but no, you know, and I think that's why I hope that as a collective, we're going to continue changing this conversation so that this healing can be happening. We do heal in community and eating disorders Mm -hmm. are incredibly isolating. Mm -hmm. so we definitely need more facilities, but we also need more like outpatient group networks that are yeah. more somatic and, and trauma-informed and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I feel like a lot of my clients end up kind of existing in silos, you know, and, yeah. and even I struggle to find a way to like ethically hold groups that aren't triggering or that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, you know, but mm-hmm. I know that's a great need that a lot of people are missing is, is a community that really gets it. Yeah. yeah, it's so well said. And I, I do think there's, Certain silos and things are are being generated that is very helpful. There's never going to be enough, though. So we want to continue to have safety, even if it's just two people in your life and those are your safe people. Um, The last treatment center I was in for Ed, they had, they end up with new rules because of all the crap I pulled. (laughs) Right. Because it, it brings up a whole different part. Like it was all the things I did to get away with what I was doing. Right. Yeah. And so they had to have new policies so that other people would not do what I was doing mm-hmm. to get away with my antics, right? So, mm-hmm. so because, I always think, I always love when my clients have this rebellious streak that comes out because yeah. I do think it's learning opportunities, you know? Yeah. Like this system is not going to work for everybody. So right. like, oh, okay, yeah, we do need to have some some differences here, some flexibility. Yes. That's yeah. right. Yeah, I always call, it, I call that part of me punk ed because that part <laughs> was very rebellious and very creative. <laughs> Like there's, yes. there's goodness in these parts, right? That we can learn. Yes. So, yeah. 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 Well, I'm glad so glad that you are in this industry and I'm very privileged that you're hanging out with me in Huntersville, North Carolina in my building and that you're available whether through TikTok or people get to do telehealth with you or people get to sit in front of you that you're mm-hmm. adding so much to ending the stigma with mental health and in the stigma with eating disorders. And I'm so appreciative to you for that. Thank you. Thank you. I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, it's awesome. So I'm going to put you in the hot seat. You ready? Okay. All right, here I we guess go. so. All right, that's what we do, right? It's what therapists do. We put you in the hot seat. Okay. Deep breath. All right. If you could have been born in any other decade, what decade would it be? Oh, gosh. I don't know, because I actually feel like as hard as it is to be a human right now, this mm-hmm. is, I'm supposed to be here right You're now. You're supposed to be. This what is a, like my soul's journey of yeah. purpose. What a great yeah. ventral vagal 
present grounded answer. Yeah. (laughs) Shit is hard right now, but like no greater time to make change and make waves because if we're, we're, things are falling apart, let's just burn it all down. I don't know. That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I like your answer. It's great. Okay. (laughs) If you could get people to hear one message, one sentence, what would it be? You and your body are not a problem. You and your body are not a problem. So good. So good. Mm-hmm. And I love that you separated you and body. All right. Yeah. So good. Not a problem. All right. If you could have a different name, what would your different name be? Ooh. That's an interesting one. I've always wished I had like a more fun, unique name. Like I was literally one of like eight Megans. So I'm trying <laughs> to think Megan. what a more fun. Yeah. Right. Like, I think there's a fine line. Like I named my daughter Logan because I was like, oh, mm-hmm. I like that it's gender neutral. So an application, mm-hmm. she'll be mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe a gender mm-hmm. neutral name. Maybe that would have been cool. All right. All right. We'll go with Hayden. I'm going to call you Hayden sure. for now. All right. Yeah, let's perfect. go with that. All right. Yeah. What is your favorite book? I just read recently The Wisdom of the Body or The Wisdom of Your Body. <gasps> yeah. We read it. Beautiful. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So that's fresh on my mind, but it was also a really good read. I think that author does a really beautiful job of elaborating on a lot of the stuff we talked about. She talks about polyvagal, but also the systems of oppression that kind of keep us disembodied, Mm -hmm. what it means to come back home to your body. It was a really beautiful read. And I did it in a little book club locally with some other other humans. So that was cool to kind of connect. Yeah, what a great connection. That's really, really Mm -hmm. good. All right, last Mm -hmm. question for you. For now on, when you hear flip your lid, what are you going to think of? Besides Kim Honeycutt? That's all that matters. That's your answer. (laughs) Perfect. That's it. That's the narcissistic answer I was looking for. That's all we need right there. I just love that concept though, too, because I feel like it, it, I feel like that's the crux of what I do too. It's like people come in, this is what I struggle with with like my website and copy is people come to me for one thing and they leave like, holy shit, you just changed my life, but I can't even explain what we just did. Like I just got something totally, so I feel like I flipped their lids. Listen, that is why I got off insurance panels. One reason I these spells because when they would call me and want a peer to peer review of what we did, yeah. I say you can't. There's no can't words magic for what happens in the session. You, yeah. you can't talk about it, right? And yeah. it's and it's yep. too invasive anyway. So, mm-hmm. all right. So you mentioned your website, which is nourishstrong.com. Is that right? Yeah, it's nourished-strong.com. And I'm on most social platforms. It's just my name at Meg Carver RD. Um, and yeah, like you mentioned, we are in the same beautiful little building here in Huntersville. We have um, in-person counseling. We do online group coaching. And mm. we're going to start to get a little series of master classes going so we can dive deeper into some of these really nuanced topics about you know inner child work and, and so polyvagal and recovery and all that kind of yeah. cool stuff yeah yeah i love that what a great resource so y'all please look in the mm-hmm. notes on this podcast her her website will be there find her in instagram handle in the land of tiktok tech whatever it is i need <laughs> to become a part of so but megan thank you so much your wis- wisdom and expertise has been amazing so thank you for that thank you thank you so much for having me yeah And to all our listeners, I know you heard something today that flipped your lid, and we hope that you were able to reconnect to who you really are. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Please subscribe, rate, and share. You can find Kim on Facebook or Instagram at KB Honeycutt. To get an autographed copy of Kim's book, visit butyourmotherlovesyou.com. Remember, no matter what, treat yourself well today.